0: Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for coming out on this uh, Friday afternoon during the, the dog days of summer here, here in Washington. Uh, my name is Dan Griswold, and I'm the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato, where our mission is to educate the public and policymakers on the net benefits of free trade and the net costs of protectionism. America today is generally an open economy. After eight rounds of negotiations in the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, after 14 uh, bilateral and regional agreements, our trade barriers are are pretty low. Uh, According to the World Bank's latest analysis, the effective average tariff rate in the United States on imports coming in is about 2.5%. But that relatively low tariff wall disguises some glaring exceptions to the free trade rule. Uh, One is obviously agriculture, where tariffs and quotas uh, are very high, remain very high on rice and sugar and dairy products. Other exceptions are clothing, textiles, uh, just random categories like ball bearings, luggage, leather goods, table and kitchenware, and the focus of our forum today, just everyday shoes. According to the U.S. International Trade Commission, the average tariff rate on imported footwear in 2005 was 10.7%, with spikes up to 67% uh, on certain categories of imported shoes. And those high tariffs have not managed to save the shoe industry or shoe jobs. Uh, Ninety-eight percent of the shoes we buy in the United States are imported, uh, before I came to work this morning, I did a random survey of a dozen pairs of shoes in our closet. Uh, one pair was made in the Dominican Republic. Two were made in India. Uh, can you guess where the other pairs were made? And its I'll tell you, it's not the United States. Anybody guess? China. China. Very good. Give that person a star. Um, yes. And I think that that is is—is uh, fairly typical of shoe closets uh, across America. Our forum today offers an opportunity to talk about a bipartisan effort to liberalize trade. Yes, I I did say that. You heard correctly. News stories about trade are dominated by partisan sparring over NAFTA, the proposed U.S.-Columbia free trade agreement, various disputes uh, with China. But there is a large and bipartisan movement in Congress to lower certain tariffs on footwear. The Affordable Footwear Act, H.R. 3934, currently has 156 co-sponsors in, in the House, including our featured speaker today. The bill has drawn support from a wide range of Democrats and Republicans. And this is a discussion that is long overdue. The movement to cut shoe tariffs shows us that Congress does not need to wait for the administration to present uh, a trade bill uh, to vote on. It can fashion its own agenda for trade liberalization unilaterally, without waiting around either for the administration or other governments uh, to act. Uh, The effort to eliminate certain shoe tariffs, uh, we believe, is trade liberalization at its best. It puts the spotlight on the costs of tariffs to consumers and families. It neatly bypasses the whole debate over environmental and labor standards at the core of trade agreements. It cuts through the sound bites about fair trade and level playing field, and it zeroes in on the basic question before us today. Are these tariffs on imported shoes good for Americans? And if not, why are they still in the tariff code? Our first speaker today is Congressman Earl Blumenauer, whose district in Oregon includes uh, much of the Portland metropolitan area, before he was elected to the House in 1996, he served in the Oregon House, the Multona, Multnomah, did I pronounce that right? Multnomah County Board.
1: They won't know the
0: difference. All right. And the Portland City Council. He is known as a champion of urban planning and alternative transportation. I understand it's not uncommon to see Congressman Blumenauer uh, riding his bicycle uh, to work at Congress while his fellow members are driving their SUVs and lecturing us about uh, uh, energy independence. Uh, On trade, Congressman Blumenauer typically votes in favor of reducing trade barriers and subsidies to trade. According to the Cato Institute's uh, Trade Vote web feature, which I all invite you to use at uh, freetrade.org, he has voted in favor of lower trade barriers 73% of the time, including free trade agreements with Peru, Morocco, Australia, Bahrain, Chile, and Singapore, expanding trade with Cuba. Uh, the Andean Trade Preferences Act, and normal trade relations with Vietnam and China. He also has consistently voted against agricultural subsidies, including the most recent Farm Bill. And of course, he is one of the co-sponsors of the Affordable Footwear Act, which he will talk about uh, shortly. The congressman is a member of the House Budget and Ways and Means Committees and the Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming. He holds a law degree from the Northwestern Law School of Lewis and Clark College. Please join me in welcoming Congressman Earl Blumenauer.
1: Thanks, Dan. I appreciate uh, the introduction. I appreciate the opportunity to spend a few minutes uh, with you this afternoon uh, talking about something that I think is very critical, and it goes far beyond... Uh, the details of the specific legislation we're, we're talking about. It deals with, I think, reestablishing some fundamental building blocks of uh, a rational trade policy, one that is not uh, tripped up in ideology and, and hyper-political uh, rhetoric. Um, I think there are a number of areas that we should – uh, be taking a step back and looking at nuts and bolts that put the focus, the spotlight, on really what's at stake to build broader areas of consensus, cohesion, and understanding. Um, my, if I had a motto for uh, for government, it would be: It doesn't have to be this hard. There, you referenced the farm bill, and we could spend. Uh, a lot of time talking about that, but that is one of the most egregious examples of something that's bad for the environment, it's bad for the economy, it's bad for poor people, uh, and frankly, it's not very good for most farmers. Um, there are areas that we can zero in, however, that are smaller steps, because after having pounded my head against the wall for the eight years now on farm legislation. You understand you've got you to find ways to lever. You've got to find ways to build a base of understanding, get a toehold, and move forward. Um, we had uh, – the first time I appeared uh, at a Cato forum, we had a fascinating forum about uh, uh, socialism and protectionism dealing with professional athletics. Um, you know, there's only – Uh, one community-owned franchise in uh, professional football, the Green Bay Packers, and we have all sorts of odd protections that are assorted uh, around protecting um, the huge industry that is professional sports. And I think this is an area where people who care about community development and tax justice, uh, fiscal conservatives, uh, people who are – principled in terms of of, uh, the flow of commerce can come together. We've spent a lot of time working together with uh, odd coalitions, dealing with construction and upkeep of timber roads, uh, wasteful Army Corps of Engineer projects, um, right down to uh, unnecessarily printing tens of thousands of pages every day in the congressional record. And we've been looking at broader areas to reach consensus and understanding, dealing with things like safe drinking water and sanitation. Um, Before we reform farm aid, uh, maybe we could do a little uh, adjustment, uh, fundamental reform that enabled the United States to give cash assistance to poor people overseas. Rather than rooting it through the elaborate system we have now, buying it from Archer Daniels Midlands, finding an American ship, taking it around the world, and then when it arrives, uh, undercutting local markets um, uh, at uh, multiple times the cost. Well, these are, these are simple, common sense things that we can do with the NGO community, with the community of faith, uh, with um, people who find themselves on different ends of the spectrum for things that are common sense. Well, as goofy as our farm bill legislation is, I think the tariff code runs a close second. I would defy any 10 people in this room under torture with a week to actually design a law that would mimic what we have created over the years. Could not be done. Could not be done. Uh, And in an era we're going to be looking at legislation uh, uh, before we adjourn um, to deal with equity in the marketplace uh, between men and women in terms of uh, employment. Well, what about gender discrimination in the tariff code? Um, My understanding is, I'm I'm relying on research from certified smart people that I work with, two of whom are here, Judah Ariel and David Skillman, uh, worked with me on a number of these things over the years. Um, 28% tax on men's imported swimming suits, but just 12% for women? Where's the outrage? Um, But then, uh, if you're talking about woven Wool uh, shirts, men are hit with an 18% duty, but women pay twice as much. Um, uh, in my district, uh, I've uh, over the years done a lot of work with a, with a homegrown little company that's, uh, that could, that's grown into a more than a billion dollar enterprise, Columbia Sportswear. Uh, they import, uh, source in uh, Asia. One of their products is a boot from China that's called Diamond Peak. If you had a men's diamond peak boot and a woman's diamond peak boot in front of you, uh, I I defy you to be able to determine any difference at all. But if you looked at the label for the tariff bill, you would find that uh, the uh, that the the men's boot is more than 15% higher for the tariff, for an identical... um, You know, there have been uh, efforts uh, on the federal government regulators to look at this. There was uh, one study in 1960 now, we're going back to the Eisenhower administration, that conceded the, quote, economic justification is questionable. Um, Well, they they raise the prices of imports um, and oftentimes there's a distorting effect uh, because of the differential in terms of tariffs where they are, it, it influences the location of production of fish, uh, locate, uh, uh, facilities um, not where they are going to be the most efficient and inexpensive overall but playing the tariff game. Um, There are, I think, legitimate concerns about trade role in dealing with productivity. There's lots of of areas that experts can talk about the distortions about trade, and um, uh, and we have heated discussions dealing with environment and labor conditions and whatnot. But one of the things that appears to be very clear is that the inexpensive goods that are typically consumed by lower-income Americans are paired up. There are uh, higher-income Americans tend to uh, purchase um, a greater portion of of, uh, services. Um, The fact that the rate of inflation and the competition for the lower-end items, particularly footwear, um, imported, um, has gone up so much less in terms of inflation than the the more expensive services that are consumed by higher income people. This actually has helped hold down the cost of living for a number of poor Americans. Even people who are uh, quite cranky, about some of the dislocative effects because the impact uh, of dislocations within the manufacturing sector have been felt differentially, and they, they fall uh, disproportionately on some of the people involved in it. It's, and it's, it's a real and serious issue. Um, but few would dispute that the benef- there are significant beneficiaries at the lower end of the spectrum, the extent to which we are imposing tariffs – particularly for not a good and rational reason, we are raising the cost of living for these lower-income citizens. Um, The net uh, loss, and we've got some certified smart people who will uh, actually extol this in greater detail as I'm sprinting for the airport, Uh, but the net... uh, uh, benefit of uh, the for the United States in terms of the welfare g- gains under the current system approaches a four billion dollar loss to the economy according to the certified smart people so what do we do um, periodically uh, we have items that uh, are brought forward um, uh, under miscellaneous tariff legislation to deal with some of the things that are the most egregious. Um, and I would, I would just posit here for a moment that there is a moral dimension here, not just an economic dimension. Um, I am uh, personally frustrated that the way this system works is, uh, is skewed against um, lower-income people. Uh, our low-income countries, as well as the potential with low-income people. Uh, I was in um, Thailand uh, right after the tsunami, and we were talking about things that we could do to help in the reconstruction of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, And one of the suggestions that was advanced is maybe there would be a a little uh, tariff relief, not so much money that was coming in, that we were... Uh, collecting more in shrimp tariffs from Thailand than we were planning to provide uh, with reconstruction benefit. And this would have been something that would have helped people who were at work. Um, I've had this conversation uh, uh, with um, uh, uh, the president of Pakistan uh, who was uh, seeking aid in the aftermath of the war on terror and did not... You embarrass him in, in the meeting we had with the Foreign Affairs Committee, but just saying, well, you know, wouldn't you be better off if we did a, if we just uh, maybe cut you a deal on uh, the import tariffs on the on your uh, textiles? Um, and he acknowledged that that might be helpful. We continue as a country to discriminate against the poorest in the world. We collect more in tariffs from Bangladesh. Than we do from England. We focus on the areas that they are most competitive uh, to protect. Uh, at times, some areas that it's arguable that we don't uh, and shouldn't be providing that protection. Um, agriculture is the worst is the worst example where there's some comparative advantage and make a huge difference to poor and developing countries. Um, well, so. We end up with this situation where we're trying to move forward and make, um, make adjustments through the, uh, these uh, miscellaneous tariff suspension bill, like maybe we'll be making some arguments that we ought to uh, reduce or eliminate tariffs on items no longer produced in the United States radical concept uh but maybe something that has a benefit of moving forward but frankly uh doing this on a periodic basis when we come up with what is literally a, a christmas tree of what it says miscellaneous uh, provisions and there's a lot of arm wrestling and you go back and forth and you put this in and it's relationship based um, well uh, i hope That there's an opportunity for us to bring together a broader cross-section of people who'd be willing to step forward and do this in a more rational basis. The legislation that was referenced in terms of the Affordable Footwear Act is um, something I'm pleased to co-sponsor and I think is a step towards that rationality. Uh, I've introduced similar legislation dealing with outerwear, where there really isn't that much competition, again, in the United States. It just artificially raises prices and distorts it. Um, I'm, uh, I am hopeful that this will be something that we can do with the Ways and Means Committee to start moving away from sort of this, this goofy patchwork that we have in place. Um, I'm arguing, I guess, that um, – n- apart from some of these bills that are a step towards rationality, that we ought to establish principles for tariffs in the first place. Um, We ought to make sure that we are minimizing the churn on American workers, that we ought to to deal with uh, some of the, the actual dislocation Within the workers, I do think that part of what we can do to punch through some of the controversy is to acknowledge the fact that the benefits of trade, while they can be very significant on a national level, the pain is concentrated locally and on individuals. And we have not gone very far to try and share uh, the benefits in ways that will make a difference. I think looking at having these sunsetted, time-limited, Um, I would think one of the most important reforms would just be attach an appropriate time uh, uh, horizon for them, and anything in the future uh, are ones that that we do have a rationale and that they are focused in time. Um, I think that there is an appropriate potential for an exception that will make a difference for the environment. We're moving, one of the few things that Senator McCain and Senator Obama agree on is that we're moving towards a carbon-constrained economy. It's happening worldwide. It's something we're going to do to deal with the threats of of climate change and, frankly, being more rational as we approach uh, energy worldwide. We don't want to put American industries in a position where uh, people are outsourcing uh, their carbon pollution or that we allow people to come into this country and get an unfair competitive advantage because they are not following sound environmental standards. But these are things that we can quantify in a very objective way and be able to tie to other benefits that we have. Um, I am uh, pleased to be a part of this conversation. Um, I am pleased to be working uh, on ways to try and reestablish a bipartisan conversation on trade, one that is not designed to draw bright partisan lines, but instead one that is trying to identify what the national interests are, how we can build international cooperation, and dealing with uh, this footwear conundrum and the goofiness with the tariff system, I think is an important step to get people to be able to understand the bigger picture, to understand that they can move forward to make some initial changes and get people acting like legislators again, um, and having 140 or whatever the, the co-sponsors already is a way that we ought to be able to help build that path. I think an, a range of these small, focused steps is going to make a big difference for us as we tackle other things. And agriculture is my uh, continues to be my uh, major. Priority, both nationally and internationally, to try and rationalize the system. Uh, I appreciate the chance to share in the conversation. Um, mercifully for you, I am on my way to the airport, um, and you do have two certified experts here who can uh, deal with this in greater detail. But I appreciate being a part of the conversation.
0: Time to take a few questions.
1: If there are questions or comments, I would be happy to. Entertain them. You're
0: a pro at this. If you just want to call on somebody, if uh, the congressman does have time for uh, two or three just, questions,
1: just uh, tell us who you are and what's on your mind.
0: I, I think we do have some some microphones yeah. coming around. If you could just wait. Can
1: everybody hear me? Uh, There's a microphone coming.
2: I note with interest that the bills that you. Uh, Sponsored were bilateral trade um, bills. Can you give us your comments on the difference between free trade and bilateral trade agreements?
1: Well, uh, the the bilateral uh, uh, approach, Claudia's, uh, I think, um, uh, frankly, stopgap. I would much rather our dealing more comprehensively on uh, on a much broader basis. For example. Agriculture, again, the dough round. around, I mean, this is an area where we can step up. I, I, th- I think that it saps a lot of time and energy to be, to be dealing um, with these one-off agreements. How do you deal with the differences in our society, our very open society versus the rest of the world, where most people are uh, well, well, first of all, the United States ought not to be afraid to lead by example. Now, some of these, I mean, we've already, if you, if you look at what we've done with our tariff system, actually, um, we, we have amongst the, the lowest uh, already in the world. Um, there are ways that we can make these budget neutral. Um, we're, we have a, an entire tax code because of the strange way that Karl Rove and Tom DeLay uh, structured their tax cuts so that they would all expire next Congress. I think they had a different strategy in mind, and they thought that they would be calling the shots. But they have fixed it so all of these these tax code provisions expire. There are opportunities for us to make modest adjustments uh, and to be able to deal with the economic consequences for some of these tariffs. I I mentioned there are some things that we no longer produce, for example, in the United States that have tariffs attached to them, Uh, the differentials Being able to streamline, um, I personally think that it's that we could buy out, for example, the sugar people uh, instead of paying year after year after year the American consumer and the American taxpayer and distorting global markets. To be able to uh, the to be able to just sort of cut through this and not be held hostage to the sugar interests, which you know what happened with CAFTA. the uh, the notion that, that we are in an energy crisis and ethanol is one of the potential um, saviors, putting aside for a moment that the goofy corn-based ethanol, it's not clear that it produces more energy uh, uh, than are required to create it in the first place. Um, why are we having... Uh, 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 quotas and uh, tariffs on imported ethanol. Um, these are items that I just think uh, it's not fair to the poor countries that uh, what we're doing with cotton subsidies literally um, can be the difference between li- for do- life and death for poor cotton farmers in Mali. And it doesn't make that much difference to the strength of our economy, and in fact, I can make an argument in terms of the costs and consequences for water and energy for us to go cotton in the desert, heavily subsidized in three or four different ways, um, we would be better off eliminating that treatment, phasing out uh, uh, payments for farmers themselves, and moving them into areas where they can be competitive and sustainable. Uh, I would much rather take it up to that level than have hundreds and hundreds of bilateral agreements that we have to work our way through, we have to arm wrestle, and at the end of the day, the pattern is probably not uh, putting us any better off in net uh, net terms, but there are wild disparities, country to country, agreement to agreement, and I... I just think it's not worth the effort.
0: Congressman, how about one more? Good to see you again. One one more question, and and please wait for the microphone to come around and please give your name and and affiliation and get right to the question. Sorry, that touched a button, and I shouldn't have
1: (laughs) taken that much time.
0: Who who would you like to?
1: Sir, Thank
3: you. Um, Perl Kurovsky, Voice and Noise Foundation. A question about how much data do you have on the distribution of the cost and benefits within different states in the USA? Uh, orange uh, growing, for instance, is paid for the whole country and benefits very local areas. How, wh- what type of uh, information do you have on that to work on each day? And who is the really powerful in the, at the moment of decision? The, the individual state? or the land
1: as such? Yeah. Well, um, I think in tariffs, uh, farm policy, you know, the real power is sort of the inertial forces and the people who already have a strong vested interest. Um, the, uh, the data is pretty clear in a number of areas. I mean, I don't want to keep hammering on the farm thing, but the benefits flow to a small handful of growers I- um, in... Uh, a few states, um, the estimates are that uh, less than two dozen congressional districts get over half the net benefits the, um, and the, but the fact that we have this information available seems to have very limited effect on the decision making process in part because of these things get wired into law in part because there are vast networks of very sophisticated, smart people who grow up defending it and because we don't look at them comprehensively. The extent to which we are able to elevate this to a broader um, discussion and be able to work with the American public and business and a whole range of other interests, um, they would be better off if we dealt with it comprehensively. The system is stacked against doing that, But uh, the extent to which we can, I think it will be easier. In the meantime, we can take some of these very glaring examples, demonstrate why it's not working very well and how we're all better off. Um, But data seems to influence this not a lot.
0: Congressman, can I sneak in one quick question before you? You're the moderator. moderator. Uh, According to an analysis, your bill would eliminate uh, tariffs on about – Uh, 60% of the shoes and about 40% of the revenue. Anyway, it it covers, say, about half the shoes. How come you didn't uh, eliminate tariffs, go after the tariffs on the other half of shoes that Americans wear?
1: The goal here is to try and deal with something, A, that will pass, B, has minimum in terms of economic impact, uh, and C, that it goes after the areas that's most egregious. And the area that it is the biggest problem is, frankly, on the lower end. And we, we can take care of more product for more people at less cost, um, and I think have a better chance of getting it passed.
0: Well, Congressman, thank, thank you me. very much no, for my, hanging around my my in Washington. Thanks,
4: thank you very much.
0: I know uh, Congressman Blumenauer would, would rather be in Oregon right now, but thank you. Well, our next speaker is Ed Gresser, director of the Project on Trade and Global Markets at the Progressive Policy Institute. Uh, PPI is uh, another think tank in town uh, that describes itself as uh, with a mission to define and promote a new progressive politics for America in the 21st century. A lot of people affiliated with it might be called New Democrats, um, talking about technology and markets Uh, in the context of traditional progressive uh, values. Ed's research at PPI has focused on, among other areas, uh, the U.S. tariff system and its effects on low-income households here in the United States and poor countries abroad. Before joining PPI, Ed served as a policy advisor to U.S. uh, Trade Representative Charlene Barshevsky uh, during the Clinton administration. And before that, he was legislative assistant and then policy director for Senator Max Baucus, the uh, Montana Democrat, who's now chairman of the Finance Committee. Ed holds a bachelor's degree from Stanford University and a master's degree from Columbia University. And he is also, also author of a very fine book, which I highly recommend. I've been recommending this to a lot of people, Freedom from Want, American Liberalism in the Global Economy. Uh, This book should be read by every member of Congress, but in particular, Democratic members of Congress. I think that was Ed's uh, target audience, his fellow uh, Democrats. Two of the most important themes of the book are that trade liberalization has been an important legacy of Democratic administrations from Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, JFK, and, and Bill Clinton. And secondly, he speaks with great authority and a lot of uh, telling, fascinating detail about the regressive nature uh, of the U.S. uh, tariff code, which, of course, uh, dovetails uh, perfectly with our uh, theme today. And we'll have copies of the book uh, for sale at a discounted price afterwards, so uh, you can get them uh, upstairs. Please join me in welcoming Ed Gresser.
5: Thank you very much, Dan. It's very kind of you. I'm very happy to be here at Cato. I always admire Cato's work and find it always one of the places in Washington that produces original work, things that you can't predict, and things that are fun to read. So you know, I return the compliment and urge you to sign up for Cato's uh, trade, uh, free trade project. And let me start here. Congressman Blumenauer spoke about nuts and bolts. So... That is a, a good place where, for me to uh, start. I'll give some nuts and bolts about the tariff system and then talk about the treatment of shoes in particular and the bill. But Let me begin with a little bit of show and tell. This is a you know, typical Payless pair of shoes. I always find when we talk about trade policy, it can be kind of dry. You're talking about flows of goods and tariff rates and these sorts of things. They they come home more clearly, I think, when you have something tangible to see and to touch. So uh, let me pass them around. Um, let me begin with the tariff system generally. Um, overall, when you think of the American trade debate, it is, since the NAFTA, very, very focused on free trade agreements, bilateral arrangements, and so on. Uh, these are... Important, but they're a bit less important than many people realize. Um, Last year, if you count the total import, it was about $1.94 trillion worth of goods. About $406 billion of this, which is about 21%, came in under the NAFTA and the other FTAs. Uh, This means that $1.5-something trillion came in under the permanent normal tariff system. So that's about four-fifths of imports. And when we're talking about how U.S. trade policy operates, what happens under the FTAs is an exception, and not a trivial exception, but not a a huge one either. How does this uh, overall tariff system work? if, If you look at the amount of money it raises, it's $26 billion last year. This makes the tariff system the smallest of America's six main taxes. Uh, income tax provided 1.2 trillion dollars, payroll tax 870 billion, corporate tax 370 billion, excise taxes on gasoline, liquor and cigarettes 73 billion, estate and gift taxes 26.04 billion, tariffs 26.01 billion. So the tariffs are about 1% of the government's revenue. This figure has been roughly consistent since the 1940s, so a quite small area of taxation. Now look more closely. What, what is uh, included in this $26 billion? Um, roughly speaking, you know, the tariff system is mainly a way of taxing a few light industry products. These are clothes, shoes, luggage, and household linens. Clothes are the biggest part of the system, $9.5 billion last year, or about a third of all ta- tariffs. Shoes are about $1.9 billion. Luggage, $1 billion. Uh, linens, like you know, pillowcases and towels and stuff, $0.7 billion. If you throw in a few other fairly small imports, uh, silverware and plates and drinking glasses and watches, that's about half of all the tariff and revenue the U.S. raises. The In total, these products... Cost about one hundred and ten billion. So they're about five percent of imports. They provide half of all the tariff money. To put it in context, um, last year we had three hundred fifty billion dollars in energy imports. That raised about zero point three billion in tariff money. Uh, one hundred forty billion in cars. Uh, That's about two billion. About the same as shoes. Twenty five billion in steel raised zero point one billion dollars. One hundred billion dollars in computers about twenty million dollars. So. If you think of the tariff system, you're really thinking about a relatively small swath of goods that are bought by families for their bodies and their homes. Another way of looking at it is what is the overall tariff rate? If you look at the tariff rate on these high tariff products, on average it comes to about 13%. Tariffs on everything else are about 0.6%. So they're about you know, 10 to 20 times higher than the average. Two further points about the system. Um, I'll come to shoes in a a bit. One is that tariffs in general are a pretty inefficient way of raising taxes because they cost the public a lot more money than they provide for the government. In the case of the household goods, $13 billion is collected by the, the government at the ports, It is part of the landed cost that buyers in the retail industry pay for the products. They mark up off that landed cost, and then states apply sales taxes to the marked-up value. Roughly speaking, these things triple the cost of a shirt or a pair of shoes between the port and the cashier. So while the government gets about $13 billion, the public, the shoppers, probably lose about $40 billion to the tariff system. So it's a much more costly for the public way of raising money than our income taxes or sales taxes or other forms of taxes. Second, the tariff system in the world of American taxation is a remarkably regressive system. This is in general because it is a way to tax necessities of life rather than luxuries, and in particular because, as Congressman Blumenauer mentioned, taxes on cheap and simple things that are bought by poor people and lower-income people and middle-class people are very systematically higher than the tariffs on the comparable luxury goods. So I'll give you three examples I looked up this morning from our ITC. Uh, one is a sweater. A tariff on a cashmere sweater is 4%. tariff on a wool sweater is 16% tariff on an acrylic sweater is 32%. So the people who are buying acrylics are quite heavily taxed, and the people who are buying cashmere are not. Um, tariff on a silver-plated fork is 2.7%. Tariff on a cheap stainless steel fork is 19.4%. So if you're going to restaurants, if you ever are you know, fortunate to go to a dinner at the Willard Hotel, uh, the Willard Hotel is not heavily taxed. But if you go to Adams Morgan's little El Salvadoran restaurants, they're quite heavily taxed. Finally, the tariff on an expensive pair of leather dress shoes is 8.5%. This is the type of thing we'd buy from Italy. Uh, the tariff on the type of cheap sneakers I've handed around, uh, depending on the tariff line it received, was between 48 and 67%. Uh, almost 50 times the average American tariff rate. That means we paid uh, $10 for it at a Payless shop near our uh, PPI offices. Probably the tariff alone accounted for about $3.50 of that store price because of the retail market ups and state sales taxes. So overall, this uh, tariff system in general is easily the most regressive of the government's six main taxes, even though it's the smallest of them. And it is also, is also I mean, it's so regressive that it's the only federal tax, I believe, that imposes a higher rate on poor families and on wealthy families. Fact- families. That's, that is, it takes a higher share of a low-income family's paycheck than of a middle-class family or a wealthy family. And the shoe tariff in particular is probably the most regressive policy the U.S. government has um, because the tariffs on the cheaper, cheapest kinds of shoes are so high. What is especially striking is that tariff system is generally now justified as not as a way of collecting taxes, but as a job protector. And here you can see, even in the case of this extremely high 48% tariff, is turned out to be quite useless. True um, tariffs last changed, as Congressman mentioned, under the Eisenhower administration. They've been excluded from all the big trade agreements since then, Nonetheless, um, shoe employment was about two hundred and fifty thousand in the nineteen fifties. Now it is fifteen thousand, down by ninety five percent. Most of the shoe jobs in the U.S. are design, marketing, um, you know, high end of the business. The types of shoes made in the U.S. are mainly specialized protective gear for the military and for hazardous industries. That particular type of sneaker hasn't been made in the United States since, at least since the 1970s. So in this case, it, the system has completely lost its relevance to trade, whatever one thinks about economic theory and trade theory, and it has transmuted itself in, entirely into a, uh, a form of taxation and a, a, quite a pernicious one. The same sorts of trends are underway in most of the other high-tariff manufacturing industries, that is to say clothes and luggage and so forth. But shoes are the extreme case. Um, For the very high cost they impose on low-income families and for the job protection, which is nil. Um, Now, this is been a lot of talk about the bolts of trade policy, but I think at the end of it, you come to something that's quite nuts, uh, to use uh, you know, Congressman's term. Uh, that's why I think in the AFI, we have a you know, quite small loss of revenue to the government, something that they can easily afford, a you know, small but important savings for families, and a tax policy whose benefits will go uh, above all to the low-income families who need them most and that is why I think it's a very good idea, and I'm very happy to see Cato giving us this chance to talk about it.
0: Thank you very much. Thank thank you very much. Don't forget to get your sneakers back at the end, even though they they don't cost very much. Uh, Our final speaker is Bill Hawkins, a senior fellow in national security studies at the U.S. Business and Industry Council Economic Foundation. Uh, There he specializes not only in trade but in uh, foreign policy and national defense issues. The Business and Industry Council describes itself as a a trade organization of 1,500 small and medium-sized companies, many of them uh, family-owned, privately held. Uh, And these companies generally support uh, the free enterprise system, low taxes, uh, but they are also wary of the impact of trade liberalization. Uh, before joining the Council's Education Foundation, Bill was an economics professor at uh, three different universities uh, and a senior research analyst for Representative Duncan Hunter, the San Diego Republican who uh, who ran for president earlier this year. Uh, Bill has written extensively on trade and security issues, and he and I have even uh, dusted it up occasionally in a gentlemanly fashion on, uh, on cable TV. Uh, he holds graduate degrees in both economics and history. Please join me in welcoming Bill
4: Hawkins. Oh, it's always mm-hmm. it's always fun to come over here to the Cato Institute, even though I'm usually invited here to be the uh, uh, the the opposition, shall we say, the, uh, uh, the 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 critic of what's going on. But I always have a fun time in, in this uh, this venue. Um, a couple of, couple of uh, points here. Uh, I think the first one we have to think about is, even though the amounts of money we're talking about have been been small, uh, there's nothing in this legislation to uh, offset the, the tax revenue, the, the tariff revenue that would be lost by, by dropping these, uh, these tariffs. Uh, there's certainly nothing in there about cutting spending by a billion or a billion nine, uh, depending on what share of the, the tax revenue or tariff revenue we're losing here. Now, Certainly nothing in there about cutting spending by that amount to balance it off, uh, or nothing about raising taxes somewhere else to compensate for this. Uh, it would just essentially apparently go into, the, into the, uh, the, the growing deficit, which means somebody somewhere down the line is going to have to pay for it. Uh, this is, in my view, a special interest, just special interest legislation, the cost of which will be dumped off on somebody else. Uh, typical kind of uh, congressional uh, maneuver um, it's uh, we were facing of course uh, really in a Democrat Congress and uh, possibly a Democrat administration next year a lot of talk about how we 're going to raise taxes uh, on uh, to supposedly to maybe reduce the budget deficit or to fund other programs. Uh, everything in in the book, excess profit taxes, inheritance taxes, bringing those back, raising the taxes again on uh, capital gains or or dividends, uh, raising uh, the income tax rates uh, levels. Um, Anything that increases the deficit here uh, will feed that that lust for other, other taxes. And I think it's interesting that the Cato Institute has in the past talked a lot about consumption taxes, substituting some sort of consumption taxes for for income taxes or taxes on capital uh, as being less damaging to the economy. Well, the st- tariffs are a consumption tax. Uh, and, in fact, there's been some talk. I was just reading a, uh, a column by uh, uh, one of the Cato senior fellows, um, Michael uh, Tanner, who was talking about proposals to uh, – substitute something would be like a VAT tax for the corporate income tax as being less damaging. But the VAT tax is a consumption tax. And the rate he's talking about, 8.5%, something like that, uh, would, would raise the price at the, at the retail level, at, at, the, at the counter where people buy their products, far more than, than these tariffs are doing. Um, and, in fact, would be applied. A VAT tax would be applied on, uh, on imports, and uh, would, would would do this, but again it 's a consumption tax and in a lot of circles is considered to be less damaging to the economy than other forms of tax revenue. I think we should probably increase instead of having tariffs the lowest source of income. we should go uh, and, and raise that uh, and, and reduce some of the other tax levels now um, on who would on the incidence of where these these taxes fall um, I was reading a, a piece that, uh, that Ed wrote here uh, that uh, the figures he used was that it would raise the price, that the, the current tariff on shoes raises the price about a dollar a pair uh, or 4.3% of the retail price is, is attributable to the tariff. Uh, if, you know, the, the, the name of this legislation is the Affordable Sh- Footwear Act. Well, if if... Footwear is not affordable now. A dollar isn't going to make it affordable. <laughs> uh, we're, we're talking about a, a very trivial amount four point three percent of the retail price. The person's going to pay more than that in sales tax when he checks out at the, at, at the counter at the store. He's going to be five, five and a half, six percent depending on what state he's in. Uh, and we don't think that suddenly makes shoes unaffordable. Uh, it's it's. Um, a grandiose name for what is, again, a, a special interest piece of legislation. Because where is uh, – who, who's really going to benefit from this? Uh, it's Bills like this – we all know this is Washington. Uh, bills like this don't get written because a bunch of barefoot peasants wandered up to Capitol Hill and demanded, we want affordable shoes. Uh, lobbyists came in, wanted this written, representing well-heeled clients. Uh, who deal in this product and who want to put more money in their pockets. That's why they hire lobbyists. That's why they want legislation passed. Uh, it's not altruism here. And who are these people? Well, it was, it was hinted at earlier, uh, but if you look at the figures, uh, 72% of the imported footwear in the United States come from China. This is the China lobby who's pushing this. And why are they doing it now? Well, uh, you know, because this tariff's been around a long time, decades, right? Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with protecting American industry because the American industry has disappeared, um, but it... Uh, so why are, we, why are we looking at it now? Well, again, China. What's happening in China at the moment? Well, things are... there's inflation in China. Wages are going up in China as they develop, which is a good thing for the Chinese, uh, Chinese workers. Uh, Transportation costs across the Pacific, oil, to move those ships full of, of cargo, of exports, is going up. They're looking for a way to cut their costs to offset these rising costs in producing things in China. And they figure, okay, we'll just get the American taxpayer to help us here. We'll cut American taxes and we'll pocket the difference uh, and that 'll help offset our, our rising costs in, in Asia. well, I think we 've helped the Chinese enough we 've had uh, we 've run a trade deficit with them. Uh, I think it was two hundred and fifty six or something billion dollars last year we 've given them a tr- over a trillion dollars this decade in our trade deficit. Uh, I think that 's enough help we don 't need to start changing our tax, ben- tax laws to benefit the, the Chinese producers and those who in the us are, are in bed with them um especially when uh, we know what you know the the Chinese may be doing with this money, uh, Congressman uh, Blumenauer was here was talking about how well, it would be all right to have uh tariffs say to protect us from uh, foreign trading partners who would try to use uh, pollution uh, or, or low pollution standards uh outsourcing uh, carbon, whatever, uh, to, uh, to, to get a competitive advantage on us. That, that was all right. That was a strategic reason to use a tariff. Well, I think a tariff to uh, restrict trade with someone who will use the benefits of trade against us, as the Chinese do. Uh, look around the world. The Chinese, on every trouble spot in the planet, Chinese are on one side, we're on the other. Uh, they use their money to finance their military buildup follow a foreign policy, hostile to us. I think if the Progressive Policy Institute, if they have, have an interest in this, I'm sure they can't be happy with what's happening in places like the Sudan or Zimbabwe. These are not progressive places, uh, but they are supported and armed by China. And whatever the money is comes from is fungible. Chinese will take the money and they will use it to support their own ambitions, which are contrary to ours. So... What do we do? Who do we trade with instead? Because this is the real question. Tariffs are also used, and tariff policy and trade policy, are also used to discriminate between friends and rivals. So this bill, in fact, actually mentions that, but in an odd way. At the end of the bill, there's a, there's a section to bring Haiti under the CAFTA agreement for the, in the basis of shoes, footwear. Haiti will get the same uh, preferential tariff treatment uh, as the members of CAFTA. Well, that's fine, except that if you eliminate the the common external tariff for shoes, the preference under CAFTA doesn't mean anything. The preference is that you get a better deal than other people who are not members of CAFTA. You eliminate the tariff, and there's no difference. There's no no basis for a preferential trade uh, relationship. And we have to remember that when CAFTA was passed, uh, China was very much in the minds of the congressmen who who voted for that. Um, There was very little support for CAFTA on basis of some general free trade notion. There wasn't a majority in either party for that. Uh, They rounded up the votes to pass it. As you remember, it passed very closely, one or two votes. Uh, They rounded up the votes to pass it on the basis that it was a preferential Trade agreement, that it would help the countries of Central America and the Caribbean in their competition with China. Uh, Roy Blunt, the Republican majority, or at the time, majority whip, um, said that. He told Congress daily that that was the main argument that rounded up the Republican votes they needed to pass CAFTA, was that this was to form a trade bloc that could better compete against China. Well, if you eliminate trade uh, tariffs on Chinese goods, then you've eliminated the basis of, of CAFTA, the reason for CAFTA, uh, or any other trade, uh, preferential agreement. Uh, the congressman said that he had voted for several preferential agreements. Uh, he, he wasn't necessarily happy with that approach, but if you look at the ones that were mentioned, Morocco, Singapore, those were, strate- those were agreements that were made for strategic reasons, for Morocco, Singapore, because they're allies, friends and allies, and are who we want to trade with. Um, Mexico, under NAFTA, uh, NAFTA wasn 't originally passed with China in mind, uh, but Mexico is certainly worried about China. Mexico was the last country to agree to let China in the WTO because they knew China was their big competitive uh, enemy in, in trade, and they have lost they 've had forty percent of their shoe exports have, have been lost in the last few five, six years, to the Chinese. Even though they're sitting right next to us and have NAFTA uh, benefit, they're still getting overrun by the Chinese, both in our market and uh, they're maintaining high protective tariffs in their own to try and hold off the Chinese at home, too. Uh, If these costs are finally rising in Asia, then that gives Mexico a chance to recover. (laughs) Because they are close to us, the transportation costs are lower, Um, and that would be a good thing. It would be much better to encourage trade, which is what NAFTA was supposed to do in the first place, to encourage trade uh, between us and Mexico and our neighbors in the Caribbean and Central America uh, than to uh, undertake policies that help a rival in uh, in China Uh, on those grounds. Actually, what we should be doing, if the current pre- preferential agreements aren't doing their job, uh, are not helping our friends enough, then we should maybe raise those common external tariffs, not cut them, raise them so that the differential becomes large enough so that our friends and the United States can mutually benefit from our trade rather than continue trading or the gains from trade of our, one of our major partners is, uh, is used against us. Uh, That's the strategic approach, uh, which I think easily trumps the special interest uh, pleadings uh, that's behind this bill. Thank you.
0: Bill, thank you very much. And I will take time for another round of questions. Please uh, raise your hand, wait for the microphone to come around, and then uh, tell us your name and your affiliation and try to get to keep the pre to a minimum and get right to the question. Yes, this gentleman right there.
2: Hi, Osman. is East National Foreign Trade Council, USA Engage. Um, it makes perfect logical sense to reduce tariffs on goods that we no longer are competitive in producing. I was just reading this article, and it, it states that only about uh, uh, the tariffs – that we impose on shoes only benefit about 3% of workers inside the United States. So um, attempts to do so come in the form of preferential trade agreements like HOPE, ATPDEA, um, CBI, and these others. Um, but at the same time, there's a concern that we are encouraging economies of scale to produce uh, – to um, develop in these less developed countries and developing countries and it's kind of preventing them from wanting to graduate. For example, Brazil continuously refuses to graduate from preferential trade agreements, and other countries that obviously have developed significant service sectors have refused to graduate because they don't see the benefit in doing so, because they can continue to get preferential treatment on the production of manufactured goods. So my question is essentially... um, how do we balance those two kind of competing goals of trying to eliminate tariffs on goods we don't produce, which makes perfect economic sense, but at the same time trying to tell developed, uh, less developed countries and developing countries that they can no longer hang on to preferential trade agreements as uh, leverage against us? And that's to both. I don't see.
4: A, I, I don't think the preferential benefits are. are I don't see how you mean it's leverage against us. I mean, we we grant preferential benefits to some countries because we want to uh, help them or strengthen political or, or alliance ties. A lot. Most most of the bilateral agreements we've made on, during the Bush administration, despite all the rhetoric about free trade, if you look at who we've, who we've made the deals with, there's really strategic reasons for this. And it's meant the, the economics involved, the, the numbers are rather low. It's to improve uh, our diplomatic uh, ties with those countries in strategic places like Singapore or, or Morocco, um, uh, CAFTA uh, earlier in CAFTA, um, Australia, you know the um, and those those are those are good valid reasons. Uh, and if we want those ties to continue, then we want uh, the, the trade that underlies them to continue too. Uh, now, I mean. You you can if if you're if you're worried about uh, a protectionist or, or or rival thing I mean you can do uh, there is a recent example of of that in Europe because Europe also has these preferential agreements with with countries uh, they just they just kicked Vietnam out of their preferential program because they said Vietnam had, had had graduated Vietnam had had developed sufficiently that they didn't need to be in the preferential program anymore. Uh, But that would be something that that we would make the call on. It's not a matter of being leveraged uh, by by the other country.
0: Ed, did you want to take
4: a shot at that? Uh, Just
5: a couple of comments. Um, The the AFI bill, or the shoe tariff concept, is not a preferential one. It's meant to be an MFN policy that would apply everywhere. So this wouldn't have a an effect of you know giving countries a, a special privilege that they wanted to cling on to. Um, on the question of Brazil, the preference programs in general is uh, six of them. They cover about two percent of imports if you exclude energy. Brazil is one of the big users of the GSP system, which excludes clothes and shoes and a bunch of you know, most of the very high tariff products and it has a, uh, a threshold when they you know which says when you reach a certain gdp per capita i believe it's eleven thousand dollars and brazil's like eight thousand or so um, then you're supposed to graduate as malaysia and singapore and korea some others have graduated in the past and i, th- I think that is how to you know it's not there in the law and if it's you know if it's enforced then the brazil problem will solve itself over time perhaps
0: Yes, in the corner there
3: uh, Hi John Magnus with Trade Winds and uh, Miller and Chevalier uh, the the three pro uh, tariff repeal presentations all stated a pretty high level of generality about the concept rather than the legislation that's been introduced um, and so I have a question for the two of you who are left about the legislation itself what would your reaction be? What if somebody took a nifty concept like repealing tariffs on footwear we don't make anymore and executed it through a bill that raised tariffs on a whole bunch of footwear items above our WTO-bound rates and introduced uh, entirely new uh, instances of arbitrary discrimination between uh, the tariff on men's and women's footwear that are otherwise identical uh, along the lines that Congressman Blumenauer was objecting to? Um, uh, so that it was not actually a straightforward uh, duty elimination bill of the type uh, that was uh, contemplated in the remarks that you made?
5: Would this be the AFI, actually? <laughs> uh, yes, we've talked about this on the phone. Um, I'm not a, a lawyer. What I would suggest is, you know, if there are technical issues, then have the, you know, the councils on the committee examine them. But my my purpose really is not to talk about a bill line by line, but to talk about the concept behind it, and I think it's a good concept.
0: Yeah, just just to clarify, you know, both Cato and uh, PPI and I think Bill's organization too, where 501 501c3 educational institutions. We're not in the business of telling members of Congress you need to vote for or against this. So it isn't really our role in this whole thing to get down into the to the weeds of every piece of legislation and say this this needs to come out. Uh, it's really to pronounce whether the general concept behind it is a good idea or or not.
4: Me. Did, did you say you were from a group of tra- called Trade Win? Yes. Sir. Yes. I have one of your things here put out demonstrating Mexico's benefit in this, isn't it? Not mine. No. Well, maybe not yours, but it's Trade Win is, no? Not the same we, organization? It's like
5: the, the gusts of wind.
4: Oh, Okay yes uh... peter whitney duke university thank you for both of you for your interesting uh... comments and different perspectives uh... on the uh... uh, the eliminating tariffs on some of the shoes my question is based on that i wonder if your membership of your two organizations would be in favor of leaving nafta as it is or perhaps revising it as one candidate in the election is proposed and would your uh, membership favor uh, continuing negotiation for uh, Doha Round and achievement of the Doha Round? Thank you. you want to go first? <laughs> oh, I'll, okay, I'll well, go that's a pretty broad comment. Uh, broad, I, um, I, I, I was amused that when, um, during the, the Democratic primaries, when uh, uh, Senators Obama and, uh, and Clinton wanted to talk about trade, they, they brought up NAFTA. Uh, as if it was the only thing they had heard of. because I mean, NAFTA is 15 years old. It's, you know, m- a lot of the world affairs have, have, have gone past it. Uh, I prefer if they would talk about something more future-oriented. Um, the uh, uh, the Doha round, as far as I've been watching this uh, the negotiations this week, um, it, it seems to me that uh, we are, in a sense, suffering from, Having uh, it was said earlier that, well, you know, we, we should go ahead and cut our tariffs. We should lead by example. Well, we've led by example and it's gotten us nowhere uh, because we don't have anything left to bargain with at Doha. I mean, we have, you know, maybe agriculture. We've already thrown manufacturing to the wind. Uh, now we're going to throw the farmers to the wind and hope that maybe we'll get something back from this. Uh, but the big split here is that uh, the developing countries, the large developing countries, uh, China, India, Brazil, uh, in particular, uh, do not want to open their markets to manufactured imports. That, that's the holdup. We want to trade off; we would cut our, we'd cut our subsidies to agriculture if they would uh, lower their tariffs on on manufactured goods. So we could, and they, they won't. They don't want to do that. Well, uh, our view is that, that the what, what the developing countries are doing is, is, is smart from their viewpoint. It's what we did when we were developing. And the way we climbed to the top, we might want to rethink and, and, and re-adopt that in order to stay on top. That Our, our position is that with 700-and-some-odd with billion-dollar trade deficits year after year, current policy is not working, and we need to... Uh, uh, curtail imports because we're never going to be able to export our way out of this we, no matter what the doha agreement is we're, we're never going to be able to export our way out of this the biggest untapped market for american manufacturers is the american market that we've lost the imports there's no other market we can conceive of in the world that can match what we've lost here and if we can gain that back we will have have uh, uh, boosted our economic growth and our income and our ability to to produce and continue to lead the world uh, on on a scale we can never get uh, by these these negotiations. Hey, um, three points. One, uh, exports are
5: actually quite important. Uh, manufacturing exports have doubled from half a trillion to a trillion dollars since 2003. Uh, Exports are the U.S.-only source of growth this year. The domestic economy is contracting and not buying things. Imports are flat in most areas, going down in some except in energy. So uh, uh, in contrast to Mr. Hawkins, I think the outside world markets are extremely important, not only over the long run, but especially today and now. On the two things you raised, uh, I think PPI, as a kind of membership institution wouldn't really, we don't really operate that way. Um, In general, we'd be very sympathetic to the Doha Round and I'm sure would support a a well-designed one. On the NAFTA, it's a very interesting question. In the 1990s, after NAFTA was passed, the share of Canada and Mexico in U.S. trade went up pretty rapidly. Um, If you look at imports from, I believe, 23 to 29% of imports or so, or 25 to 29%, sorry. Then since... 1997-98 1997-98 has gone back down. is now about 27%. So my impression is that the, the tariff advantages that Mexico and Canada have have been overshadowed by the rising competitiveness of Asia and by the development of global supply chains that make bilateral policies generally a bit less attractive to businesses. Um, so I think it... Is not at all a bad idea to look at the relationships with Mexico and Canada. I would imagine you can see, also see our export market share going down a bit. See how it can be improved. Um, I don't think it should be the top priority of U.S. trade policy. I think there are you know, you know more pressing problems we have, but I'm not averse to the idea.
0: Uh, I, I would add, Bill. Bill brought up the issue of did the United States grow to industrial prominence behind tariff walls, and there is a kind of uh, uh, seeming cause and effect in that we had high tariffs up up until uh, World War II, actually, and we did have rapid industrial expansion. I would just uh, I don't want to weigh in as a third participant here, but uh, Douglas Irwin of Dartmouth has done some uh, very uh, very impressive work on this to show that. The actual growth came in uh, sectors that weren't protected uh, that was leading the growth during that time. And then in, in Ed's book, he talks a lot about the post-war period, which was a time of uh, uh, very rapid growth in the United States and, uh, and much lower tariffs. So anyway, it's a very lively debate that Bill brought up, and I at least wanted to get that other uh, point out there. Do we have any, any further uh, questions? Yes, the back row there. Could could you wait for the microphone and then let us know uh, who you are and your affiliation?
3: I'm Lois Ted with Minority Women-Owned Businesses. Uh, I remember in the early 90s, China seeking MFN. Was there a limitation uh, to most favored nation status for them? Are they still there? Uh, I, I know Colombia got uh, some kind of status from it because all the defense contracts, small ones, were being channeled toward them. When I worked there, and I just wondered, when he mentioned about most favored nation and Vietnam being kicked out, is there, what do you, is there a limitation to that? Okay, um, the U.S. relationship with China
5: has changed basically three times. Um, we had a, a total embargo on China between 1950 and 1973. Um, when President Nixon went to China, he lifted the embargo, so trade opened up again. Then in the year 1980, under President Carter, China was given what they call most favored nation treatment, which doesn't mean like best country. It's the it made them eligible for the the permanent tariff system. Then in the um, year 2000, this uh, MFN treatment they'd gotten was made permanent. Um, so it, there's no time limit on it. But China is not given any preferential treatment. It's treated. Um, much as we treat Europe or um, other countries that are not the beneficiaries of special arrangements. Vietnam as well.
0: Uh, Ed, I don't know if you wanted to respond to, uh, while China's uh, the topic right now, and Bill, feel free to weigh back in, but Bill put some pretty provocative stuff out there about uh, the fact that Lowering the MFN tariffs on shoes will just uh, send more business to China. Okay. Uh, Um, How would you respond to concerns about that?
5: Well, uh, I don't think it will, actually. If you look at shoe imports as we are in this bill, uh, we had about 2.43 billion pairs of shoes come into the U.S. last year. Um, 2.40 of these came in not through NAFTA or CAFTA or any other special arrangement, but under the permanent tariff system. This is largely because uh, the shoe manufacturers are not China. They are companies run by Taiwan, Taiwanese and Hong Kong and Korean businesses who are manufacturing in China. Some of that has shifted to Vietnam a little bit as in Indonesia, So the people who are benefiting, if you're thinking of manufacturer benefits, are basically Taiwanese and and Koreans. And they will set up in the places that they think are most uh, convenient for them, which is what they've done. They may move on from China. They may not. But if 72% of shoes come in from China with tariffs and only – 1% one percent of shoe imports come in from preference countries, then i don 't think this is a very significant issue those aren 't big industries for the cAFTA countries it 's not particularly a big industry for mexico and if they can 't succeed with a you know, an edge of twenty to sixty seven percent they 'll have to think of how to become more competitive before they should think about trade policy
4: bill i i 'll give you the last yeah my, word well my my point was that, that the timing of this bill, I think, is, is maybe heavily influenced by the fact that it is becoming more expensive in China to produce things for a variety of reasons, transportation, higher wages, inflation in China, pressure. Uh, there's there's increasing international pressure on China to revalue their, their currency upward. Um, and there, they may – this opens – I think the opportunity for some of our trade preferential friends to recover markets they've lost because they they used to do more than they are. The Chinese have beaten them out uh, over the last few years. Uh, that we have a chance, particularly in in, in Mexico, in one particular choice, uh, for them to maybe recover some of this lost ground. And uh, I think the timing of this legislation is meant to to protect the, those who are, who are working in China against this opportunity that others may have because of the rising prices in China.
0: Well, thank you very much to our speakers. Please uh, give a round of applause to our (laughs) our speakers. Now I would invite you all to the Winter Garden to enjoy our complimentary lunch. Thank you very much for coming today.